Oh, good morning, everybody. There's, there's a few more people trickling in, uh, but we wanted to let you know about something. This is a letter that we actually sent out via snail mail a couple days ago. So some of you may have gotten it by now. Uh, some of you might get it in a few days. But if you if we don't have your address, um, obviously we wouldn't have been able to send it to you. So we have a couple extra here. Uh, basically what it's saying is in the month of October, we're planning on bringing back a couple of things that we've been missing since COVID and everything changing. We're glad that we can be back using our building and meeting together, but we haven't had music uh, since COVID started. Um, and we also haven't had, we did communion once virtually, uh, which was kind of interesting, uh, but we haven't had communion in quite a, quite a while. Usually that's something we do once a month. So we're planning on bringing both of those things back um, starting two, sun no, next Sunday. Starting next Sunday, um, we're going to be doing music earlier at 10.15. So from about 10.15 to 10.45 or so, uh, we'll have music that won't be live streamed because there are some uh, difficulties with copyrights, uh, with songs being copyrighted. So if you're going to want to join us for music, you'll have to be here in person for it. 10.15. Um, and we're planning on just having everyone wear masks during the singing time because the state uh, regulations is that everyone, if, if there's going to be singing, everyone has to either be 12 feet apart or wearing masks. And in this size building with this size of a group, we just won't be able to do the 12 feet. So we'll just plan on wearing masks for the singing time. And then once we sit down, we can take them off. So we're, it's going to be still a little bit, we're, we're having to adapt, but we're very much looking forward to having those things back. And communion, uh, we haven't set the exact date for that yet, but I think it's one of these weeks in October we'll have communion and we'll, we have individually packaged um, cups with wafers. So when we do have communion, we'll have someone telling you as you're walking in and you can grab one off of the back counter as you come in and take it to your seat and then we'll all partake together uh, later. So it's going to be a little bit different, but we are definitely looking forward to having those elements of worship back in our uh, routine and our, uh, our rhythms. That is, yeah, that is a good question. Uh, you can still come a little bit early if you want to get here right at 10, but then there is going to be that um, time between the, the music and the teaching time. So we're planning on starting the teaching right at 11 and the live stream right at 11 like we have been. So there is going to be a little bit of time in between there for you guys to, uh, for us all to kind of hang out and, and fellowship and talk um, from like 10.45 to 11 o'clock. that answer it? I don't know if there's going to be donuts. I'm not the donut man, so <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to take that up with someone else. I don't know. So I, I think that's all for announcements. Um, Let's, let's pray together, and then Mike is going to... We're not going to... If, you, if you've been with us for the past... Uh, the last four weeks, we've been reading through the book of Jonah every week uh, throughout through the whole thing, and we decided that if you have been around for the whole four weeks, you've heard it enough times now. Uh, and if not, you'll just have to catch up. But we're not going to read through the whole book today, but Mike will be sharing uh, from the last chapter again today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just I thank you for a beautiful day today that we can uh, once again gather and, and be together. I pray that your spirit would fill this place and fill our hearts and that, your, that the truth of your word would speak to us today, that we would grow closer to you and closer together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, David. And no, you are not the Donut Man because I grew, my kids grew up watching the Donut Man, and you don't look anything like him. Did you really? Wow, you're nothing like him. Just want you to know. So last week, <laughs> last week I had set the goal of trying to finish up Jonah chapter four, and I failed. Uh, I only got through like the first couple verses of it, and so this morning 
Uh, Lord willing, we are going to wrap up the rest of the verses from Jonah chapter 4, but we're also going to um, kind of enlarge our view of the book as a whole. Um, so we're going to try to accomplish two things this morning, and um, we should be done with the book of Jonah by Christmas, I think, at this point, David, so we, we should be good. Um, so if you followed us with the book of Jonah at all, you know that we believe Jonah was a real person. There are people who believe that it's just a story. Others um, uh, hold that it's a historical event. We, I, I believe, and I believe David believes it's, it's an actual historical event. Jonah was a real person. Uh, Nineveh was a real place, and these events really took place. Um, we know about Jonah not just from the book of Jonah, but in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, uh, he prophesied to King Jeroboam of Israel. Um, we also know that Jesus referenced Jonah in the New Testament of our Bibles, which Lord willing David's going to get a chance to cover that next week, unless this turns into a three-part that I'm on right now. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm really comfortable saying that I believe that Jonah was a real person uh, who lived and it was a historical event. But let me ask you a question. If you were writing a history of your life, what events would you include? Anybody? If you're writing a history of your life, what events would you include? Only the best ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking. What would you exclude, right? I mean, that's easier to ask. Probably. Well, you know, I don't want to bore people with these things. I'd probably give them the highlights, but I certainly don't want them to know about this, right? Now, what's the exception? When would you maybe share some of those negative, some of those blemishes in your life? When might you be willing to share that as part of your biography? Okay, yeah. As a teaching moment, yes, and when it would help someone else. Yeah, absolutely. So if there was a good lesson to learn from what you did, right? Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully it's learning from the good that came from the bad situation. So I'm curious, how would you describe Jonah throughout the book of Jonah. Just tell me, what, how would you describe him and his actions? Whiny. Take that. How else? Cowardly. Hateful. Yeah. Keep going. Disobedient. Bitter. I mean, this is a great list. The list can just keep going, can't it? Rebellious, stubborn, arrogant, childish. I mean, you can just keep going on with it. It's not just one event. It's a whole series of events in Jonah's life at this time that are recorded. And it kind of makes you wonder, what makes a man of God a prophet, a mouthpiece for God? What makes a man of God willing to allow his life and these attributes be recorded for all of Israel and all the world to read and even become part of our canon of Scripture? Why would he want such horrible, terrible examples of how to live put down in Scriptures? So I want to pose a question, and then I want us to look at some scriptures together this morning. What if, along with being a historical narrative that it is, the, sto the story of Jonah also has a bigger message to share in the way that Jonah lived? An allegory. Now, God used the prophets to relay his message to his people and to record their words. I mean, that's the books that are a part of our Old Testament canon. The majority of them were written by the prophets. They're important people. They're, they're the ones who took down the word of God, shared it verbally, and also wrote them down in, in books. And God said something to the prophet Hosea that I think is just a, a really cool statement. Hosea chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. God says, I have been Yahweh, your God, ever since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the festival days. I will speak through the prophets and grant many visions, and I will give parables through the prophets. Now, that word parable there, we often associate parables with the New Testament, right? With Jesus' teachings, he had a lot of parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. You see a lot of those parables. This word parable here is a little bit different. It means um, a, a resemblance, um, something to compare to, uh, something to ponder, Matter of fact, it comes from the same Greek word 
um, for human, for Adam, who was made in the likeness of God. So a parable is something that's made in the likeness of something else. It's Adameth, right? Adameth, um, which, which means to resemble. Now, Hosea, we, we said we weren't going to cover Hosea as a prophet. You should read Hosea, but we're a family-friendly church, and that's not just one we want to read off on a Sunday morning. There's some really crazy stuff in there. But Hosea's life was a parable. God told him to marry a prostitute and have children and give them really weird names that talked about their relationship with Israel. His whole life was a parable in that sense. It was a comparison of the nation Israel to the way Hosea was being asked to live by God. Uh, Ezekiel was another one of those prophets that had this experience. Ezekiel, I, you know, if there's a person I would not want to be in the Bible, it's Ezekiel. God had him lay on one side for 390 days and eat his food that way and just lay there on the ground for 390 days and then roll over to his other side and sleep and, and, and stay there for another 40 days. 430 days, he had to eat food that he cooked over dung and gather all of his supplies before he started as a parable of the way that Israel misbehaved and rebelled against God. Crazy. Would not want to do that. Over a year laying on his side just to illustrate the way Israel was. So we see that God often used the, the prophets as like real live parables, as real live examples. So what if alongside of being a historical content, a historical narrative, the book of Jonah is also a parable or an allegory of the nation Israel? Is it possible that the message of Jonah is not just about Jonah, nor primarily about the sailors who repented and followed and worshiped God or the Ninevites who repented? What if it's also a bigger lesson for the Jews as well as for you and me beyond just the history. I don't only think it's possible. I think it's totally intentional. And I think that there's not just one layer of possible allegory. I think there's many of them. And we're going to try to cover a few of them this morning. And then David's going to try to cover some more next week. Um, so this is going to be kind of one of those Old Testament nerd sermons. So you're going to we'll have all the notes online. You're going to want to probably follow some of them. And some of you are going to be like, okay, this is just not for me. Just try to stay with us. Follow the concepts because you'll see it throughout the rest of the prophets that, we are, that we're going to be studying, these same concepts. Um, but we'll get some practical application too at the end, I believe, when we get to the end of this. Um, so I want to start by finishing up the verses that we didn't get to. So Jonah chapter 4, turn in your Bibles if you will there, Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 5. We're going to finish reading the rest of this um, section. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. So before I read verse 5, uh, what happened to the city of Nineveh? No, it didn't. That's the problem, right? It didn't get destroyed. Nothing happened to it. And Jonah's mad, and he's mad enough to want to die. So that's where we pick up with Jonah chapter 4, verse 5. So Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and, it didn't, and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may, not, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? It's kind of ends there. It's one of the few books of the Bible that ends with a question. It ends with a really weird question, I think, in some ways. I mean, it makes sense that God would ask, shouldn't I care about the people? But then he says, shouldn't I care about the animals also? Well, that kind of really took me for a little bit. Matter of fact, it's one of those topics that keeps bouncing back and forth as David and I were studying the book of Jonah together. And um, God, God mentions the animals for a second time in the book of Jonah. Right here at the end, that God cares about the animals. But we also know that in, the, in chapter 3, 
the animals put on sackcloth and, and had to fast too. And they're like, why would you make animals not eat or drink? And it's this, this connectedness between the animals and the humans. Um, for us, that seems kind of odd, but apparently in Hebrew thought, it's not so odd. As a matter of fact, David in Psalm 35 says this, Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heavens. You might reckon this is a, I think third day did this as a song. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the sky, right? All right. Your, your love, Lord, your faithful love reaches to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like a high mount, the highest mountains. Your judgment's like the deepest sea. Lord, you preserve people and animals. Somehow that last part didn't make it in the song, but the rest of it did, and we know the song. It's a cool song. But you, you preserve people and animals. There's this connectedness that's part of Jewish thought. So that, that just, in case that was throwing you, I just wanted to let you know that it's, it's part of God's big picture. And remember, if you go back to the garden, man was placed as a steward over all of God's creatures, including the animals. And as a part of the curse, the land was cursed because of man. But we also find out that all of creation groans and is looking for redemption because of our sinfulness. So we see that there's this connectedness between man's actions and even the repercussions of that on the, on the animals and on nature around us. Um, not part of the message, that was just a side note. Um, so this passage with the plant uh, has been mostly a mystery. Um, like, why is it here? What's the point? Doesn't it just seem like it doesn't fit the rest of the story? I mean, he runs away to the sea and you have sailors. That makes sense. He goes in the water, you have a fish. That makes sense. He goes to the dry land. God told him to go to Nineveh. But then this going out there and this plant, this whole plant thing, just doesn't seem to fit the rest of the book. It just seems like it's odd. And it's interesting that I would say at least 60% of the children's books that I picked up, we have about 18 of them that we're going through, um, they, they don't even mention the plant scene. They don't mention the worm. Now, I know, David, you're kind of keen on the VeggieTales Jonah video. They do have the worm. He's one of the main characters in the story. Um, are, are we just supposed to see in this lesson of the plant Jonah's bad attitude? Is that what we're really just supposed to get from it? and God's compassion on Nineveh. And a lot of people will draw that conclusion, and it's not a bad conclusion that, um, that God is patient and that God is merciful. That's a good conclusion. The challenge is that God says that he wants to have compassion on Nineveh, but around 660 B.C.-ish, God sent Nahum the prophet to prophesy against Nineveh that it's going to be destroyed. It didn't take them long to go back to their old ways, and God's going to destroy them. So, yes, he had compassion, but eventually he wipes them out. So if that's the only takeaway of the plant, then, you know, that God is just being gracious to the Gentiles and saving them, it, it only lasts for a little while, which is not a theology we want to get into. <laughs> so, so you have to say, well, is there more to that? Um, and I think that there is. I think that there is. Um, it's possible that there's a deeper meaning and a bigger picture of this. So let's take a quick overview of what takes place. Jonah leaves Nineveh, and where does he go? To the east. Now, the east is one of those phrases you really want to have fun with watching throughout Scripture. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God places the, the, the cherubim with the flaming sword at the east of the garden. They're sent to the east. When Cain is, is sent away from the presence of God, he goes to the east, further away from the, the presence of God. So this idea of going east actually carries with it this theme throughout Scripture. Not always, but a, but, a, but a very common theme of going away from the presence of God, which is really a neat, a neat picture that you get. Um, it symbolizes distancing from God's ideal. So Jonah left Nineveh, and he went to the east. Okay, Then what does he do? Most of the storybooks say that he went up on a mountain to watch what would happen. It's not in there, by the way. There's no mountain. He does go to the east. And what does he do when he gets to the east? He builds a shelter. That's right. He builds a shelter for himself. It's obviously not a great one because God had to supplement it, but he built one. And it was hot. And so he's sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. Now, he already knew that God had re relented. Actually, the, the Hebrew word is repented, but we like relented better because repent sounds like you've done something wrong to turn from. Relented is a little less. God doesn't make mistakes. So we use relented in our English as a, as a common rule. Um, some older versions, 
like um, the King James Version actually, I believe, still used repented in, in those passages. But God had changed his mind, and Jonah knew that, which is why he was mad. So he's waiting to see what's going to happen to the city. Well, what's going to happen to the city? Nothing. And he knows that. So while he's sitting there, what does God do? What's that? Takes care of him. And how does he take care of him? He grows a plant over him, right? It's interesting, David brought this up, that many people question the ability of God to create a big fish that could swallow a man. Um, nobody questions the plant that grows overnight. Um, so God creates this plant. It grows up overnight. And Jonah sits under this plant. And what's his attitude? How's he feeling? He's happy. <laughs> the first time in the book that he's happy is sitting in a shelter under a plant waiting for nothing to happen. Let's chew on that one for a while. That'll give you something to think about. He's happy. And then the next morning, God sends the worm. The worm eats through the plant, and the plant withers. And then what's Jonah's response? Kill me again. Yep. Again, it's like he already, he already wanted to die at the beginning of chapter 4. And as a matter of fact, that's why he said, throw me in the water in, in chapter 1. He wanted to die then, too. So he's got this death wish here. He's like, oh, just kill me. So... God appoints, but, but he wanted to die because God appointed something. Remember, there's that word appointed. It shows up several times. God appointed a storm. God appointed a big fish. God appointed a plant. And God appointed a worm. And God also appointed what? A wind. What kind of wind? A burning east wind, a scorching east wind. This is another one of those themes that carries throughout Scripture, and especially throughout the prophets. Jonah wants to die, and God reaffirms his compassion for, man, for mankind. So that's the narrative of this plant thing. Okay, That's kind of like the, the steps that we go through. So east, we talked about, is leaving the presence of God. Jonah leaves the presence or the ideal of what God has and goes in a separate direction. The east wind, if you go through the Hebrew narrative, um, the east wind actually is often sent as a plague or a punishment. It's often used as an illustration of other nations. Um, for instance, Hosea chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, we read this. Although he flourishes among his brothers, an east wind will come, a wind from the Lord rising up from the desert. His water source will fail and his spring will run dry. They will plunder the treasury of every precious item. Samaria will bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God they will fall by the sword. Their children will be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. It's a graphic, brutal picture of this punishment that God's going to bring. And when you first start to read it, you're like, okay, God's going to send this east wind. And this east wind is going to dry everything up and make it like parched, like a famine. But then you read that there's going to be sword and bloodshed and all sorts of other things. This east wind is a, is a country that's going to come in. We also read in Hosea 12, 1. Ephraim chases the wind and pursues the east wind. He continually multiplies lies and violence, and he makes covenants with Assyria, and olive oil is carried to Egypt. So this idea of chasing the wind and the east wind, and then the connection with Egypt and Assyria is, is significant. Wind is personified as an enemy who will bring about punishment from God. And Ephraim, by the way, is a name for Israel. Okay, so you, you can take Ephraim and Israel in this in Hosea, and you can interchange them. So you're talking about, about Israel then. And the charges are brought up against Israel that she has become violent. I think that's also interesting in that Hosea passage. Continually, Ephraim continually lies and does what is violent. But what was one of the charges? What was one of the concerns about the Ninevites? They were wicked and they were violent. Remember, David had some of the images up on the screen where they were like stretch people out and skin them alive and stuff, like really graphic, horrible things that they would do. This is being said about Israel, that they were violent now. And because of her violence and lies, she's going to be punished by an east wind, and that east wind is Assyria. So going back to our story, we've talked about going east away from God. We talked about being punished by an east wind, which is Assyria. I'm curious, why would God choose to not punish Nineveh in chapter 3? 
but choose to punish Jonah in chapter 4? What's the difference between the Ninevites and Jonah? Anybody? I know it's a lot of questions this morning. Repentance. Outright repentance. The Ninevites repented. They fasted. They put on sackcloth. Even the king did. They sat on ashes. They didn't eat or drink anything. They made their animals not eat or drink anything and put sackcloth on them. And they prayed and they said, who knows? Remember that phrase? Who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe he will change his mind. Jonah never repented. Never repented. And he's going to be punished for it. His pride saw Nineveh as being wicked and deserving death, but he did not see anything wrong with his own actions that brought about his trouble, the scorching east wind. So if Jonah is a type of Israel, it's possible to consider that having gone away from the presence of God and trying to protect themselves, they got into trouble. And this could, also, this could possibly be even be seen as the times where we talked about Shalmaneser III, who raided Israel and took their animals and crops and people before the time of Jonah. It's possible that the beginning of this, where Jonah leaves Nineveh, goes to the east, away from the will of God, away from God, and is persecuted a little bit, represents the time in Israel life before Jonah's on the scene. And that, therefore, the plant where they're under protection could also be symbolic of this time during Jonah's life, where Assyria is weakened and not attacking them, and they're actually prospering. And under even a wicked king, God is allowing them to take back some of their cities and reestablish some of their borders, and they're feeling the protection of God. In 2 Kings chapter 18, 18 verses 1 through 8, Hezekiah was the king of Judah, and he did follow the Lord. Um, and he was able to defeat the Assyrians and hold them off. But then there's this punishing east wind that beats Jonah and wants, makes him want to die. And perhaps this is foretelling of the upcoming exile that is going to come from Assyria, the east wind. In 2 Kings 18, 9, and 12, it's King Hosea, the wicked king, who gets captured and Israel goes into exile. That hasn't happened yet in Jonah's life. That's going to happen. 2 Kings 18, 12, because they did not listen to the Lord, their God, but violated his covenant on all that he commanded Moses, the servant of the Lord, they did not listen and they did not obey, is what it says with cause of their being exiled and punished. And then in 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 18, Judah is also taken captive. So in this narrative of the plant, you have Jonah with some discomfort or trouble is the word. You have God providing a protection where he's able to be comfortable and actually be happy for a change. And then you have this punishing east wind that makes him want to die. And it's very possible that even in that short passage, that there is a bigger message of the exile and of the work of Assyria, of the Ninevites, in the lives of the Jews that though they were very much trouble in the beginning and God has given them rest at the present, that God is going to send them as a scorching wind to devour them and to make them want to die. And that is exactly what does happen. And that is why it's not in any of the children's books, because you just can't explain that. That's also the entire message of the book of Hosea. Read it. It's the whole message of the book of Hosea wrapped up in a story about a plant. Allegories are designed to make us think not every part for part, just like the parables. If you took Jesus' parables and you tried to make every part of the parable match up with something else, it's not what it's designed to do. It's meant to give a bigger picture message for certain things, but not make everything line up 100%. This lines up really well with what happens with the nation Israel. Matter of fact, do you remember who it was that actually conquered the, um, the northern tribe of Israel, and then and, and took them into exile. Anybody remember who that was? This is like way nerdy. I wouldn't expect any of you to. But we, we talked about the kings of Assyria. There were five of them. Just like gave you the whole answer. So I, I'm hearing it. 
Shalmaneser the fifth. Yeah, Shalman. Matter of fact, there, there is a verse that refers to Shalman, and, and a lot of people believe it's just like a shortened name for Shalmaneser. I didn't know he had a nickname. So, so that's that last part of this book. There's multiple lessons to learn. One is, is just the wrongness of Jonah's attitude of hatred for the Ninevites and his own selfishness and desiring comfort over obedience. There's the idea of God being merciful yet again and having compassion on people who repent. Great lesson to have. And then there's this, this allegorical picture that's also a prophecy. Remember, Jonah's a prophet that shows how God is going to be dealing with the nation Israel because they are much like Jonah. So let's take that thought a little bit. Speaking of the, of the whole book of Jonah, let's zoom out a little bit. We're going to do like a macro view here, and we're going to have a little fun. So the first, the first sermon that we had, David gave us the definition uh, of what the word Jonah means, actually. The, the, what does his name actually mean? Anybody remember? Dove. Good, good. You did really good on that one. So Jonah's name means dove. Now I just want to have a little fun with you. Um, Hosea chapter 7. We're probably going to be in Hosea a little bit today, so you're welcome to flip back and forth there. Remember, I've got all these verses are going to be online for you to check out, and I do encourage you to do that. But I want to read for you a passage from Hosea. I want you to keep in mind that Jonah's name is Dove. Um, I think you'll have some fun with this too. Hosea 7, verses 10 through 12. Israel's arrogance testifies against them, yet they do not return to the Lord their God. And for all this, they do not seek him. So Ephraim has become like a silly, senseless dove. They call out to Egypt, and they go to Assyria. And as they are going, I will spread my net over them, and I will bring them down like birds of the sky. I will discipline them in accordance with the news that reaches their assembly. So Israel is like a silly and senseless dove. Now, if I were to ask you how Jonah is acting, how how this man of God is acting in this book, you would say he is being totally ridiculous. No man of God should be running away, should even think for a second he can run away from God and then disobey God if he's a prophet of God. And all these things that Jonah's been doing, no man of God should be doing that. He's acting silly and he's acting senseless. And this passage in Hosea says that Israel, Ephraim, Israel, is acting like a silly, senseless dove So I think we can take Israel, the silly, senseless dove, and compare them with Jonah, the dove, who is also acting silly and senseless. And I think we can see some really good comparisons between the nation Israel and Jonah. I think he's a great symbol of the nation as a whole, a type of, archetype, right? A type of. And we're going to look at that. What I want to do is... Look at some events, look at the overview of the book, and then I want to read some passages from some of the other prophets. And I want to see if you pick up on some of the key words that link, kind of like hyperlinks on a website. See if you can pick up with some of the key words that link what that prophet is saying to the story we've learned in Jonah and, and how it might relate to Israel. Okay? So the events of the Jonah. God gives Jonah a mission, and Jonah does what? runs away. God sends trouble on Jonah and the sailors. They cast, uh, actually cast lots. I didn't get any verses on casting lots, this one, um, because David's covered that. They figure out Jonah's to blame, and they throw Jonah overboard. The sailors worship Yahweh. Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish, and he prays, but never repents. He said, you've removed me from your presence, which I always thought was kind of an odd phrase when you consider Jonah ran away. Sailors threw him in the water, but he says, God, you removed me from your presence. He says, I will look to your temple once again, something else that's kind of odd in that prayer. And the third thing that he says is that those that worship vain are useless idols. You know, God will punish. Something else that seems odd in that prayer. But he prays, God decides to spare him, which is why he had the fish come in the first place, spits him up on dry land, did not spit him up into Nineveh. I made a comment as it last week that that was like 100, it's actually like almost 600 miles from the closest spot on the, on the water to Nineveh. So if a sp- fish was going to 
That's a long shot. So no, he didn't spit him up into Nineveh. He spit him up on the shore, and then Jonah had to go to Nineveh to preach. Um, Jonah obeys, gives God's message. All of Nineveh repents, including the animals. God shows mercy to all of them. Jonah gets mad. Jonah is punished by God. And we never read about Jonah repenting, ever. Yet, the main, the main message of the prophets is to do what? Repent and turn back to God. And John the Baptist in the New Testament, I don't want to get too far into David's sermon, um, comes with the message of repentance. And Jesus taught repent. And Jonah never once repents. So let's read some passages. If, you're gonna, if you have your Bibles and you want to flip through them, cool. You can do that. Uh, Amos is the first prophet we're going to go to. You're going to be like, oh, prophets? I don't even know where they are in my Bible. You'll find them. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. In Amos chapter 1, God says he's going to punish the pagan nations. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, he makes a switch. Amos 2, verse 4. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four. Because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, the lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. So Amos starts out saying God is going to punish Israel. and He will not relent. He will not turn away from this punishment like he did with Nineveh. I will not relent from this one because they have turned away. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They disobeyed, right? Which is exactly what Jonah did. So because they have disobeyed, God is going to punish them, and he will not relent. And this goes on and gets explained more um, throughout the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. We have a couple passages from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find me in me that they went so far from me, following worthless idols and becoming worthless themselves? So the charge to the Israelites is what fault did they find in God, their ancestors, that they went so far from me? How far did Jonah go from God? Down to the bottom of the, of the, of the depths of the sea, the, the roots of the mountains. Remember when we talked in chapter 2 about the prairie, that he went down to the roots of the mountains, to the very depths of the, of the sea there. So he ran away tried to get as far away as he could, went into the bottom of the boat. When that wasn't far enough, he got thrown in the water, went into the fish, and then sank to the bottom of the water, to the roots of the mountain. As far away as he could, that was his goal, to get as far from God as possible. Why would he do that as a prophet? Perhaps to illustrate exactly how far Israel has gone from God in their disobedience. Why have your ancestors followed worthless idols and become worthless themselves. There's another part of that chapter two prayer where God talks about, where, where excuse me, Jonah mentions that those that serve worthless idols um, will be punished. He says, but then he says something really ironic, but as for me, I'll offer sacrifices again um, and I'll fulfill my vows. Um, Jeremiah chapter three, the Lord announced to me, unfaithful Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And so they're both bad, but one is a little less bad than the other. Go proclaim these words to the north and say, return unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 13, that scattered your favor under every green tree. Um, I, I didn't get too much into the shade concept of Jonah being under the shade of the plant. But there's a lot of these prophecies like this one that talk about them, uh, the Israelites establishing the altars underneath shade trees and having sacrifices to their pagan god, which also involved um, very immoral activities under the shade of these trees, and that's what the scattering your favor underneath the shade of these trees is talking about. Very lewd things that they would do that God is mad at them for. But he brings out the fact that he is unfailing in his love, even though they have been unfaithful 
then they have turned and they need to return back to God um, that they, and admit that they have rebelled. In Jeremiah 16, 11, then you will answer them, because your ancestors abandoned me, this is the Lord's declaration, and followed other gods and served them and vowed to worship them. Indeed, they abandoned me and did not keep my instruction. You did more evil than your ancestors. Look, each one of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart, not obeying me. So I will hurl you from this land into a land that you and your ancestors have not known. And there you will worship other gods both day and night. I will not grant you grace. So here you have that evil heart, that stubbornness that we see in Jonah. Uh, We even talked about that stubbornness in the prayer. You know, it's like, really? He couldn't just, you know, okay, yep, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I'm on the boat. It's my fault. What do I need to do? Well, I can, I'll repent and we'll be good. No, just throw me in the water. I mean, there's that stubbornness of just not wanting to give in to what God is doing. Um, and then there's that word hurl, which is one of those words that shows up that God hurled storm. And, and, it's, and there's, this, there's several places in the book of Jonah where things are hurled by God um, at the people. And this is just another one of those examples where God says, I'm going to hurl you. I'm going to throw you into another land. And that's what's going to happen. So some of the same terminology and phrases take place in Jeremiah. Um, Remember I made a comment that that prayer of Jonah in chapter 2, where he says, you have driven me away from your presence, seemed odd to me. Isaiah 27, 8. You disputed with Israel by banishing and driving her away. He removed her with his severe storm on the day of the east wind. Whoa, did you just catch all that? There's like, okay, you dispute, you banished and drove her away with a severe storm on the day of the east wind. And in Jonah, we had a severe storm and the east wind is like Assyria. And this Isaiah just throws all of these things together. Like it's nothing to do that. And it's not uncommon for them to do that. Just like they'll take Ephraim and use it for Israel and they just swap words out. They'll take things like Babylon and they'll refer to Babylon and Egypt as the same thing. Even, if, even though they were different kingdoms, it's not uncommon for them to swap words like this. And he's like, okay, you have the storm and you have um, this uh, east wind, and it's all tied in together in Isaiah. Um, Daniel, that's a long passage in Daniel. Get there, Daniel chapter 9, verses 7 through 18. Daniel chapter 9. i got you guys all over the place. It's a good Bible drill. And we're like, nah, it's too many. Daniel 9, verse 7. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Now remember, Daniel, we already covered the book of Daniel. Daniel happens while the Israelites are already in exile. Okay, They're in Babylon. So they've already been taken captive. So they know they've done wrong, and they know they're being punished by God. And that's, that's where Daniel steps in. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have, where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He's carried out his word that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing us on a disaster that is so great that nothing like it, what has been done to Jerusalem, has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. Does that sound familiar at all to Jonah? So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done, but we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly, 
Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become the object of ridicule, all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your ears and see the desolation in the city that bears your name. We are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Hear and listen. Isn't that how Jonah's prayer started out in chapter 2? And here you actually have a petition where they're saying, we, we haven't turned and now we're going to return. We haven't repented and now we're going to repent. And so please, based upon your compassion and your mercy, again, the same theme over and over again, that God is a compassionate God and a merciful God, uh, over and over and over again. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. And who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Well, that doesn't sound too familiar, does it? I mean, this is exactly what the Ninevites did, and it's a command to Israel, do this. Basically, this is so embarrassing. It's like he's saying to the Israelites, be like the Ninevites. That's rough, but it's really what he's saying. Repent, weep, put on the sackcloth, mourn, tear your clothes and your hearts. Let your hearts break over what you've done. And who knows, maybe God will relent. Same exact words that we had in Jonah. Back to the book of Hosea. In Hosea 11, Hosea is talking about the day when God is going to spare a part, a remnant of Israel. Though he's punishing them for their wickedness, he he cannot go back on his promise. And his promise is that they would be a nation and a blessing to the earth, to the rest of the earth. And even when he wanted to wipe them out at one point, Moses was like, no, please don't, God. Keep your promise. God can't go back on his promise, but he will punish them, and he will keep some of them alive and bring them out of this so they can fulfill their calling of representing God to the nations. So Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. What I love about this passage is you really get to see the heart of God, which is, I think, part of what Jonah is really trying to bring out. The, the hardness of heart of the Jews, but the tenderness of heart of God toward all of his creation. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the hand. But they never knew that I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down, gave them food. Israel will not return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will be his king because they refused to repent. A sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me. And though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like the Boeing? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the fury, the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. 
For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. You get in that passage just this wrestling, this human type of wrestling placed on the God of all creation where he doesn't want to punish his children, but he has no choice because of the rebellion. And yet, even though they deserve to be wiped out completely in his compassion, he relents. He does not want to destroy them, but he wants to bring them back to him. I believe this is a beautiful picture of the book of Jonah. As an allegory. That just as... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Now I'm going to go right there. If we think about Jonah as a type of Israel, Jonah disobeyed God and turned from him. And when his life was threatened... He begrudgingly acknowledged God and his decrees, but he never repented. Jonah became a messenger to the non-Jews, who then repent. And Jonah was upset because God showed mercy to the repentant pagans, but not to the stubborn, rebellious people chosen by God. And I think as you look at the book of Jonah and you look at the nation Israel, and you go back to that question of why would a prophet... Why would a man of God who is known for speaking the word of God and leading the people toward God and toward repentance want these events of his life recorded in the scriptures? Just like it's crazy for a prophet to think he can run from the Lord, it's equally insane for Israel, God's chosen people, his covenant people, to think they can run from God. Jonah should have repented and humbly followed God. And everybody can see it except Jonah. And that's exactly the message for Israel. Jonah's selfish prayer in the fish, prayer for deliverance and stubborn obedience out of self-preservation and not love, should make every Jew cringe and recognize their own rebelliousness. And God's mercy to the, to the most wicked, violent, cruel people of that day should have reminded Israel that even if they, who are now described as violent and wicked and foul people, that even if they would turn to God and repent, that he would be willing to forgive them and relent. And, Jonah, and Jonah's over-the-top temper tantrum at the end um, <laughs> Complaining of God's mercy on the Ninevites and complaining even more of his hardship is a slap in the face of the Israelites who are doing the same thing. We talked about that in Micah. Look how the wicked, how the wicked do well. They prosper, and the nations around us are doing great. Sorry, Malachi, not Micah, Malachi. Um, and here we are, struggling. The message to the Jews is that God sees their ridiculous, silly attitude and rebellion. And though he would relent from his fierce anger, he has had enough and will not relent until they're punished, but not wiped out. And that is the narrative of the exile, the entire exile. And it's given as a picture of the events of Jonah's life during this time of prophesying to Nineveh. I think there's a few other things that you and I can take away. You're like, okay, that's nice. It's a great message for Israel, Pastor Mike. It's great. Thanks. Um, I wanted to bring that up for a couple reasons. Um, not only does this 
point to a bigger picture for the nation Israel, which is what a prophet is meant to do. A prophet is meant to give a message that points people back to God, and a pre-exile prophet like Hosea and Jonah were meant to draw people into repentance, just like his message to Nineveh was to repent so that God would might relent. Jonah's never does that to Israel in his in this book, but he does do it as an allegory for the nation Israel. He is a prophet to the nation Israel, not just to Nineveh. And a lot of people think that the um, the whole part about God being sovereign over nature and, and stuff that doesn't really play into it a lot, but. I want you to understand that there's another layer of allegory to this that's beyond just the nation Israel that goes into the New Testament. There's another layer of allegory that takes us to the, seeing how Jonah actually relates to the, the message of the Messiah and of Christ. And we're going to, Lord willing, look at that with David next week. But some things I think that we can take from this is God does not change, even if he does relent. His message is consistent, his word is trustworthy, and he affirms his character and his mission over and over, lest we lose sight of it. And yet, even with all of it, we can lose sight of it. God's message and character and being does not change. God is a God of compassion. He gave Israel chance after chance and warning after warning, but they refused in their stubbornness to follow God. And that is a picture of every nation and every people, isn't it? God is still a God of compassion. God is truly a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. I asked David how he would summarize this section. Um, and he did such a great job. I want to read his, his closing remarks. Um, as a summary of this, and then we'll close in prayer. The name Adam means human. It also means parable, which refers to something which is like or resembles something else. Humans are a parable. Jonah, literally the silly dove described in Hosea, is a parable or depiction of Israel. A group of people who scorned God's love by violating the marriage covenant they made with him. Israel is a parable of the rest of humanity. That includes us. Humans were made to resemble God, but we have all rejected him and worshipped other things. We have all cheated on God. And yet we see that God's character, as shown through the parable of Jonah, is one of a relentless lover, constantly pursuing humanity with forgiveness like a scorned spouse with a desire to reconcile. Hosea showed it toward Israel, and Jonah shows it to all of humanity. God's ultimate outreach of compassion, his ultimate act to reclaim his love, his bride, was revealed and manifested in Jesus. In the life and work of Jesus was the perfect example of what humans were made to be, and his life was sacrificed so that we can realize that purpose alongside him. Jonah, in hindsight, is a great Adam, or parable, on several layers. And we've just seen how that story represents Israel and God's relationship with them throughout the whole Old Testament period. But it also represents God's bigger picture plan for humanity and how that was realized in Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself referred to Jonah, and we can see how the story of Jonah represents the story of Jesus more in more ways than one. Lord willing, David's going to get a chance to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God, that you give chance after chance and warning after warning, and opportunity after opportunity for us to set aside our stubbornness or our comfort or whatever it is, our arrogance that keeps us from following you. Father, I'm thankful for the reminder of just how much you love and how you reach down to all of your creation to demonstrate that love, reaching even so far as to send your own son for us. Father, break us of our 
stubbornness and our arrogance. Teach us what it means to tear our hearts before you and to trust you and to follow you. Father, help us to enjoy the covenant relationship that you want with us and not to pretend that we can run away or to be foolish enough to think that we can avoid you. Give us your heart, Father. Help us to have compassion for the people around us and help us to have a love for you that will be evident to the world around us so that we can be representatives, parables of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you that um, are not big on prophecy, I appreciate you sticking around for that one. Uh, that was a lot of verses to get through. They'll all be online. Um, but my hope is that as, you, as we go through the other prophets, you're going to continue to see how these stories all interrelate. And there's one big story of exile that's really being, being given. Um, I said, Lord willing, next week we'll get into the, the New Testament application of Jonah and how that comes up. So um, with that, uh, you're free to go. If you have questions, we're welcome to, you're welcome to ask questions. We'd love to take those questions. Um, Lord willing, next week we'll have music again at 1015. We'll start music. And um, I, we figured if we took the donuts inside, that would be okay as long as we figure out how to do it and keeping up with all the state guidelines. And it's probably going to start getting cold soon anyway. So if uh, I don't know who the donut crew is, but if the donut crew wants to you know, work through those details, let me know. Um, Lord willing, we'll, we'll wrap up uh, the prophecy parts of Jonah next week. So any questions or prayer requests or comments? He's like, no, want to go. I want cider. <laughs>